So instead of dispersing animals, having dispersed wild animals across a landscape, first we fence them. And then after fencing them, we figured, well, we've got the synthetic nitrogen. Let's just keep them in the barn. We don't even have to worry about walking around with them. We'll bring them these plants that we feed nitrogen to. And now that's gotten so out of hand and competitive advantage and all these jargon words have created these massive CAFOs that are essentially some of the largest polluting entities in the world where we are spewing methane and nitrous oxide and CO2 at unprecedented rates. If you imagine 50,000 cows, that's the same weight in one dairy. That's the same amount of weight that you have in almost 500,000 humans. So imagine a 500,000 person city with no sewage regulations, with everything going into an empty pit that's anaerobic, spewing methane and nitrous oxide into the air. That's what we've done with nitrogen and methane and CAFOs. Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of the Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots, farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label to distinguish soil-grown crops and pasture-raised livestock under the organic seal. You just heard from Real Organic Farmer, Ben Dobson. He farms at Stonehouse Farm in New York's Hudson Valley and currently specializes in growing grains and hemp. But he also manages a carbon modeling project called Hudson Carbon that tracks the influence of different farming practices on carbon sequestration in the soil. Ben has a gift for explaining the science behind why some agricultural practices are better than others for the environment. So let's return to my conversation with Ben Dobson and hear a few more of those great explanations. I'm talking today with Ben Dobson. He's the manager of Stonehouse Farm in Hudson, New York. Hi, Ben. Hi, Lindley. How are you? It's nice to be with you. I'm, I'm doing really well. It's August. It's, it's hard to get farmers in August, so I'm glad we can both get together. I've got a crew out there getting ready for farmer's market tomorrow, and it sounds like you're busy today, too. I am, too. We're making baleage. We're prepping our hemp crops. Um, they're about to go into flour. And uh, we're cleaning grain for some cover crop seed orders for other farms who plant cover crops. So we're, uh, we're, we're in the thick of several things, as well as our car right. carbon project launching soon. So We're lucky we found each other for an hour. Thank you. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about Stonehouse Farm. We kind of got acquainted because uh, Stonehouse Farm signed up for the Real Organic Project. So I'd love to hear more about it and uh, why you felt Stonehouse Farm was a good fit for Real Organic. Absolutely. So Stonehouse Farm, I was hired uh, seven years ago uh, to consult on how to transition this 2,000 acre farm in the Hudson Valley from being what at its time they considered a beacon. Uh, it was the first farm to bring GMO corn and soybeans to the county of Columbia. Uh, as dairy was really falling out, it brought larger scale grain production. Um, mm. And the farm was owned by uh, David and Peggy Rockefeller and they, put they collected seven farms put it together uh, and conserved it with American Farmland Trust. But they brought a grain model that uh, three of their children, Peggy, David, and Abby, who I now work for, um, decided they wanted to change. They wanted to make it organic. Um, and they wanted it to be a viable farm and a strong part of our, county, our county's economy without unduly affecting other farms. So in my first year, we spent a year listening to other farms' um, concerns and excitement about what we might do. And the unanimous, uh, what we got back from bakers, brewers, farmers, was that we need a local source of non-GMO and organic grain. 
as a, as a core uh, resource for our local food economy. We have a burgeoning local food economy here in Columbia County. We're about two hours north of New York City. Um, and so that really made our decision for us. We had grain bins and tractors and a combine, uh, all really suited for grain, but we had land that was not suited to make organic uh, local grain yet. So in, 2000, in the fall of 2013, we actually did a whole-scale organic transition on 1,630 acres of cropland and all of our hay and pasture land hadn't been sprayed. The previous management understood we were probably going organic, so they grudgingly stopped spraying the hay and pastures uh, a couple years beforehand. Um, and in 2014, we started harvesting non-GMO grain crops um, and really implemented a, a, a wildly new program across the farm. So I'll fast forward to today. Um, what we do now is we're on, we farm a bit more land. Um, we rent some from neighbors. Uh, and Abby purchased a former research farm next door to Stonehouse uh, called Mud Creek, where we've built some extra human grade grain bins and, and house our research project, which is called Hudson Carbon. Stonehouse Farm now supplies over 100 farms and businesses with local grains. All of our customers, except for a few, are within 50 miles. I'd say 5% of our customers are further than 50 miles. And all of our vendors, except the, you know, the big corporate insurance companies and Case International is not local. But uh, outside of that, our money that flows out is local and, where we, and our, our, vendors, our customers are local. So we supply... We supply baking wheat, we supply milling, um, malting barley, we supply rye, oats, peas, cover crop seeds, and most importantly, non-GMO and organic animal feeds to a, a long list of customers. And almost all those customers are making food that they sell directly to eaters. We don't like to use the word consumer, we like to say eaters because I feel consumer is a bit denigrating. Um, so what we are is without competing with any, uh, any local part, we've really been plugged into the local food economy and made a core input a local thing. We also supply lots of hay and partner with a, gr a grass-fed beef farm to rotate across our land. And we're just about to start milking a herd of organic Guernseys on grass that'll be grass-fed uh, coming down from Vermont with the farmer Warren Rankin. So oh, wow. that's uh, the, the core business of today. And we also grow hemp. Um, and that's led us into some other medicinal plants. We've just planted our first echinacea this year that'll be harvested next year. And we see hemp as the spearhead of medicinal plants. Um, so that's, that's the base, the core of what we do uh, at the farm. It's we're sort of diversified and focused on supplying inputs to others in the food and health industry. And in the Yeah, in the spirit really of organic farming, you're quite diversified. Yeah. So I'm confused a little bit about non-GMO versus organic. I know non-GMO grain can, you know, uh, you can use glyphosate or other herbicides as a desiccant. There's a lot of confusion in the marketplace around this. A lot of customers or eaters, as you say, are looking for non-GMO over organic because there's so much confusion. Could you help just kind of clarify that world so that eaters Abs understand what the difference is? Absolutely. So I'll first clarify that I have major problems with the non-GMO verified project because they they're only talking about the genetic composition of the plant material and their limits aren't even good enough there. They do not talk about the fact that most plants are genetically modified, soybeans and corn and alfalfa to be resistant to Roundup. So in our, where we do a non-GMO um, protocol is that while we were in transition, our grains couldn't be certified, but we were using organic practices. So we advertised our grain as local, chemical free and non-GMO. 
And once we became uh -huh. certified organic, we began sourcing grains from other farms in organic transition. And we have a local conventional farm who has agreed not to spray um, and not to use synthetic fertilizers in the production of his non-GMO grain for us. So for us, non-GMO means it's organic in all, but that it hasn't been through the three years. So it's a way to help. We pay a premium to farmers and this helps them transition towards organic. And that's how we okay. sell our non-GMO. Um, and it gives that's me great. the opportunity to buy local grain. For example, I'll buy rye that isn't organic from local farms and I can specify to other farms, this isn't organic, but it was grown by so-and-so over in Ankrum, for example. So we're a large part of what we're trying to do is create a local grain supply chain. And for some farms who haven't gone fully organic, who I'm working towards organic, I use that, that middle ground, but I do not apply the, allow the application of glyphosate, 2,4-D, dicamba, atrazine. Um, a couple guys I know on some of their grains use a little synthetic nitrogen. Um, but okay. I don't, I, so I very much have a, a set of rules I use internally, but your question is right. key because it's, it's certainly been compromised, the non-GMO label, and it's very confusing. Yeah, it's hard to be a consumer these days. And, you know, the Real Organic Project is not trying to add to that confusion with an add-on label. We're trying to educate on, on, you know, what the market is like out there. And, and for, for you, how do you shop? What do you say to eaters when you're trying to help them, uh, you know, do the right thing? Nobody wants to pay more and get fooled by marketing, you know, but I, I do believe people, there are many people really do want to support the right thing. So what, what advice do you have for them? So my core piece of advice is first for consumers to understand the core issues around health. So look at if you're eating grain, we need to first understand that most human grade grains that are so-called human grade grains, they really shouldn't be, are sprayed with Roundup as a desiccant. So if you're eating your Quaker oats or your General Mills, I'm sorry I'm calling people out, but I will, um, you're likely gonna see that instead of people swathing grain or waiting for the proper time to harvest these grains across our grain belt, this stuff is being sprayed with glyphosate directly on your grain before it's dried down to harvest. So it's no wonder that people really can't eat bread or grains anymore. I'm sure there could be problems with the breeding and the gluten, but you're also eating Roundup. So my first, that's my first step. And then the other thing to really think about for, as, a, as a consumer, but I'll say eater, I like to honor people as, I call them eaters and users, but consumer is a, a label I, I try to avoid. Um, I think that eaters really need to first understand what chemicals are used in the production of food. And it's very hard to find this information, but it's important. And I find that it's powerful because once an eater knows, oh man, if I'm eating frosted flakes, that was sprayed with Roundup. Even a, a person who doesn't think organic is important, they know that Roundup's to kill weeds on their yard. And I don't, if, you know, very, I'm talking to standard Joe who might spray weeds with Roundup, they probably wouldn't want to think Roundup is on their cereal. And then from there, I, you know, many of us aren't fortunate, but I am. I'm able to choose to eat from farms who I know, um, are what practices they're using and where their food comes from. So I buy my raw milk locally. I get my grain here on the farm. I get my beef from the guy who grazes our farm. And we have about, in our county, we have those options. You can eat that way. I get my vegetables. My mother and father are both vegetable farmers and we have vegetables at home. Um, and I, my wife is from the Caribbean. We eat lots of goat. I get the goat from um, gentlemen from Jamaica who work with me on the farm. So I'm very lucky. I'm, a, I'm like a 0.001%. But what I would advise people is to know what's sprayed on your food. And for the first, at least go for food that isn't sprayed. 
So I still think USDA organic is more important than non-GMO or conventional. But as you know, it's degrading quickly, and we really need labels like the Real Organic Project to point people towards what's right in organic. So I always point people towards organic and biodynamic with the caveat that you really have to look out where your organic food is coming from and get it from a farm that you can identify who is at least willing to talk about their practices. I'm sorry for the long answer. No, it's great. Um, it's, it's so great to me too that you spent a year trying to figure out you know, how the farm could be most useful to the organic landscape in New York and your surrounding community. And I think you really hit on something that's important across the country, and that's that we are importing so much organic grain. And we're not able to produce enough ourselves. And there's two things going on here about, you know, the fraudulent imports that are coming in. And that's one of the re main reasons why the Real Organic Project exists. But also those fraudulent imports are, are being used to provide the grain for CAFOs that are now allowed in organic poultry production. So I was wondering if you could kind of comment on some of the things that are going wrong with organic and, and the need for farmers to come together and protect it. Absolutely. Um, I think that first we need to look at this whole context as we have a very muddled political situation where if you say I don't want international trade, you're branded as a, as a protectionist Trumper. Um, and that's not the case. We actually, but we do need to protect our domestic production of organic food. Um, the organic movement has for, for very long now depended on the imports of grain. We've had an organic industry that grows by 10 to 15 percent a year while the amount of organic land in the Americas, has, in the United States of America, has only expanded by 1% to 3% per year. That entire gap is milk and meat being fed with imported grain, organic grain, so-called organic grain, often going through a, a pretty infamous port in Turkey, where it's relabeled. The base source of this grain is often Ukraine, Romania. No knock on Ukraine or Romania, but the, the USDA program is not based there. Um, and also from Canada. Some comes from China and India, and some comes from Argentina and a little bit from Brazil. So that's a very big supply chain to be supplying well over half of our organic grain. And I think when eaters are eating organic, they're not imagining that they're eating chickens that never saw a pasture and that ate grain that was raised in Ukraine. But that's the case when you're buying a quote, quote organic chicken off the shelf. I don't think people imagine that when they're drinking Horizon organic milk, that they're basically eating grain, you know, forage that was made under a pivot with water that's running out, uh, along with grain that was imported from one of those seven countries I just mentioned. Um, mm -hmm. And this is undermining the very fabric of our organic community, where small and medium producers, which this was all about, are no longer able to compete. And we're seeing that across the board, where people who aren't good niche marketers are not able to hang in there. Um, and this is all due to the corporatization. Um, we have an NOP, um, an NOSB. I even think our OMRI boards are all compromised with industry representatives who are dead set on the, the, expanded of, the expansion of corporate organic. With, that's, and the backbone of this is this so-called organic grain that's imported. And this is a core issue that must be addressed. I have so many follow-up questions there. That was great. Uh, so what, what uh, effect do you think this has had on the price point for organic grain farmers here in the, in the United States? Have you heard whether it's like kind of stayed flat? Has oh, it actually dropped? I don't just think. What's we're, going on? From the time I started with certified organic grain in 2016 to today, we're down 30% on prices. 
So we're dealing with basically our profit margin being wiped out due to the imported grain that is very unlikely to actually be organic, much of it. Um, and therefore an organic producer, so what I do in our own supply chain is I work with a group called Tuscarora Grain. He only buys organic grain grown in America from a verified farm. And he's honest enough to tell me which farm it is. And he trusts that I'm not going to cut around him because he, when I need, if I, if I, I don't grow everything I need. Sometimes I need extra field peas for our soy free feed. Um, I just ran out of corn two months before my harvest. So I've had to source some extra organic corn. And I, Chris Johnson is a wonderful guy. I know I'm calling him out here, but I think he'd be happy to be advertised as a guy who's truly honest and focused on organic grain um, grown in the States. Um, the, but our prices have plummeted. Um, and, and I think that that's been really convenient for corporate food producers because America's all about cheap food. And these guys are making a killing because they're still able to make an uh, organic premium on the product. They basically own the supply chain to groups like Whole Foods and supermarkets and supermarket private labels. And now they can get their core input for uh, two thirds of what they used to. So you can guess where all that money's headed. Right. And some of the response has been, well, we're making organic cheap and affordable for everybody. And it's like, but it's not even organic what you're yeah. selling. So, so I, you know, I, you can just stick an organic label on something that's conventional and it becomes cheap. But, you know, when you talk about the farmers that are really, you know, uh, meeting the true spirit and letter of the organic law, you have said, you know, organic means carbon. We take organic chemistry. That's chemistry of carbon. Talk about how organic is so much more than just organic inputs. You know, that's that's a start. You know, it used to be considered no spray, but with that long national list, now it's come to be defined as anything that is using organic inputs. Tell, tell me what organic really means to you. Absolutely. So I'm going to do a little pun. Real organic farming, uh, as you guys are focusing, focuses on or the word organic itself. So organic, organic can, refers to carbon. So organic chemistry is the chemistry of carbon-based compounds. Organic farming, um, especially when in the time of Sir Albert Howard and J.I. Rodale, that's what they're really talking about. They're like organic farming is where your core focus of your farm is to build your organic matter because it's our organic matter where nutrients are transferred, where the soil life lives and where water is held. So therefore, let's call it organic farming because basically we're trying to farm more organic matter into our soils. And we know that if we have the right organic matter content that the, we, with other minor adjustments, we can make a sustainable food system based on that soil. That's what organic means. That's why we call it organic farming. We're farming to build our organic matter. And then with that organic matter and the compounds and life and water that revolves around it and through it and interacts with it, that's what makes our crop. So we grow our soil, which then grows our food. That's the focus of organic farming. And with that core philosophy, you end up not needing the sprays. You end up not needing these synthetic fertilizers. That's what it was all about at the beginning. My parents who went to UC Santa Cruz Farm Project, that's what they taught. That's what Alan Chadwick taught. That's, that was the basis of all this. Um, but after 30 years of shortcuts, we've ended up where we are today, where it's basically a list of inputs you're allowed to use and inputs you're not allowed to use. And there are, in fact, many organic farms, big ones, who are treating their soil worse than conventional farms. That's how bad the situation has become. So talk about that connection between... Uh, carbon sequestration, organic farming, carbon sequestration, and climate. 
Sure. So really, if it started five billion years ago when our planet was 95% carbon dioxide, our atmosphere was 95% carbon dioxide. And 200 years ago, that had been drawn all the way down to only 280 parts per million. And that was all done through the agency of photosynthesis. First, photosynthetic microbes who were able to break CO2 into carbon that stayed in their bodies or the soil under them and oxygen. And over all those years, all that, that CO2 was converted to oxygen and then, of course, hydrogen and nitrogen, which make up our atmosphere. And the organic matter made, then we got plants. And once we got plants, the plants got bigger and bigger. And then over time, we had events where forests were buried, wetlands were made, and then many of those, those plants were fossilized, therefore fossil fuels. When you're burning fossil fuels or you're, burn, you're driving down the car burning gas, you're actually using solar power. It's just 300 million years old, maybe 500 million years old. So this whole thing happened through the carbon cycle, our very existence. And what organic farming does is it, the real organic farming, not the listed organic farming, but what we're talking about today is organic farming that uses photosynthesis as its core action. And what photosynthesis does is it takes sunlight, takes carbon dioxide, and then it takes water and nutrients up through the plants and in the chloroplast the magic happens and that's where carbon goes into the plant the plants exude oxygen and then the carbon is pumped down into the plant the plant uses some of it to grow its structure or its roots and the excess carbon is exuded from the roots as carbohydrates to feed the soil microbes and then after the soil microbes eat some of that carbon they keep some of it for their body they poop the rest out as CO2 and plants, the other th tricky thing about this is plants need CO2. But if you're emitting CO2 from the soil surface, it's okay as long as you have plants up above it. They'll recapture that CO2 and create a little pump, a little low carbon cycle. But in conventional farming, where you have barren land that's pooping carbon into the atmosphere with no plants to get it, that's where we create more carbon emissions. So what organic farming is aiming to do is to play use the high carbon cycle, which is what I call the atmosphere above our heads, and the low carbon cycle, which happens between the soil surface and the plant stomata on their leaves, to pump carbon through the plants into the soil and feed the microbes so that those microbes and biomass are able to break down plant roots, debris, and create more stable forms of carbon, along with the ton well, a healthy soil has 20,000 pounds of microbes in an acre. And then the plant matter itself that's living is storing carbon temporarily as well. So our earth wants every square foot to be growing something if it can. And that's the best way that we can mitigate climate change. It's also organic farming is about maximizing that transaction and bringing as much CO2 into the soil, into that rotation as possible. And then that CO2 helps go into the plant and make carbon. And those carbons then ultimately create more organic matter. More organic matter means more soil life, which means more mineralization of nutrients, more water holding capacity, and healthier crops. I hope that makes sense, but that's the cycle of, that's where the carbon cycle and organic farming meet. And real organic farming to me is man good management of the carbon cycle with a side effect of food. That was the best summary I think I've ever heard. It was like fourth grade science class in five minutes. And we all need to be reminded what we learned in fourth grade science class. Yeah. I'm saying that because my daughter's in fourth grade. No, it was in fourth and grade. She, yeah. 
Yeah, so she was studying all of this. And it's like, we've, as a society, we've forgotten. And it, and with COVID, it's great because the parents are getting the curriculum yeah. of their children again. Somehow Maybe there's a, a little hope there. Somehow in America, we're able to teach this critical lesson about how life works. My sons and daughter can recite the water cycle. And the oldest is 11. My youngest, who's two, can't quite yet. But my seven-year-old daughter can. They understand <laughs> She'll learn the, in kindergarten. They understand yeah. the water cycle. They understand the nitrogen cycle. They understand the carbon cycle. And that's the basis of life. But then, then the unlearning begins. And from there, we, yeah. we teach kids how to function in a system that, has, that now completely ignores these cycles as fundamental to, the, to our existence on this planet. Um, yeah, has completely broken the cycles. Exactly. Yeah, uh, okay. It's too many things. Um, do you want to dive in a little bit into nitrogen and why the nitrogen cycle is also broken in terms of, you know, harvesting um, the feed to a CAFO, the nitrogen that, you know, turns into pollution instead of, you know, being redistributed back on the land. Talk a little bit how animals are involved in this system and, and include both nitrogen and I suppose, since you did so well with carbon, you could touch on the methane issue. Absolutely. So where carbon we've taken from the ground and put too much in the air, we take nitrogen from the air and we put it in our water. And then we also distribute it poorly through animals. So I'm going to go back to before our human, before humans, uh, or before we had such a horrible impact on this planet. Our nitrogen was cycled between the air and plants that were leguminous plants. And these leguminous plants would breathe in nitrogen from the air, N2. And then in their rhizobia, they turn it into usable forms of nitrates and nitrates, nitrites and nitrates. Um, and then this nitrogen would feed the soil and the other plants that needed nitrogen. And then plants would eat these other plants and then those anim uh, animals would eat these plants. And then the animals weren't fenced in and they were usually in herds being moved by predators. And they would distribute that nitrogen through their urine and through their manure across the landscape, which also distributed nitrogen where plants needed it. This was distri evenly distributed nitrogen, but ultimately all brought in from the air by plants. And the earth figured out, okay, we only need this much nitrogen, but we don't need, it, we don't need too much. I'm talking about the microbes, so it's like we. Uh, and then the microbes scale up to the rest of the, the, the you know, larger, larger flora and fauna. Um, and then we humans came along and figured, well, let's stop hunting, let's, let's raise animals. And we started fencing them in, and then we'd bring the food to them, and then their poop would end up in a pile, or their manure. Manure is a much nicer word. Manure would end up in a pile, um, and the, the plants would have been collected from somewhere. And if someone was really thinking, they would redistribute that manure where the plants needed it. But what's ended up happening to the ultimate degree now is that we use, then this was, we had to use manure and legumes all the way up until we discovered saltpeter in Chile, which is now known as Chilean nitrate, actually allowed in organic farming. And Chilean nitrate or saltpeter was used for two things, making weapons and fertilizing crops. And then at World War I, the Germans were landlocked and they couldn't get saltpeter. So two gentlemen, uh, Haber and Bosch, developed a technique to take nitrogen from the air and turn it into liquid. And that's changed the nature of war and it changed the nature of farming. But it, farming and war have unfortunately, they're now on the same page with industrial agriculture. Um, 
so then we took nitrogen from the air and we added to this equation. So we could take nitrogen from the air, liquefy it, feed plants nitrogen, and then feed that nitrogen, those nitrogen-heavy plants from synthetic nitrogen to animals and, co and concentrate their manure in one place. And then over this last century, we've seen an unprecedented rise of animals leaving pasture. It used to be people realized, oh, it's easiest just to let the animals eat. We don't need to cut the plants and bring it to the animals. Let's, let's let They're them eat They're healthier out there. They're easier. Yeah, that's what they do. So I kind of, sorry, I left that out earlier. It's not like people didn't use pasture, but they did start confining their animals and bringing them food when they had to. Then, now we're at a point where most of the animals that we eat or get eggs or milk from never leave a barn. Well, let me do one thing. Methane. Anim meth methane is broken down in healthy aerobic soils. So her her huge herds of herbivores, potentially more herbivores than we have today in CAFOs, roamed this earth. And they would eat a mix of plants and f plants, grasses, forbs, legumes. And it appears that they let out less methane, but they certainly let out methane then. But that methane was broken down by methanotrophic bacteria in the soil, in aerobic soils and other microbes that would turn that methane into carbon and hydrogen, CO2 and hydrogen. So CO2 is nowhere near as potent as methane, and that CO2 would get cycled back through in photosynthesis. So fast forward 100 years. We now use synthetic nitrogen to grow plants. We drive those plants, sometimes over a thousand miles, or sometimes across oceans, to feedlots. We concentrate all the nutrients of those plants into the manure and urine of these animals. Usually animals that should be distributed across 50,000 acres are often located in one spot. All their manure and urine goes onto concrete or mud. And then that's scraped and ends up in these lagoons, big pits filled with manure and, and urine. And at this point, I'd call that shit. It, it's liquid shit. Um, it's no, it no longer deserves the honor of the word manure at that point. Um, and this then is filled with nitrogen and not only are the animals belching methane that they're not on a landscape that can break down, but all their manure and urine is collected in an anaerobic liquid pit that then generates even more methane. Beyond that, that liquid pit starts generating nitrous oxide, the most potent greenhouse gas of all, in large amounts. So instead of dispersing animals, having dispersed wild animals across a landscape, first we fence them. And then after fencing them, we figured, well, we've got the synthetic nitrogen. Let's just keep them in the barn. We don't even have to worry about walking around with them. We'll bring them these plants that we feed nitrogen to. And now that's gotten so out of hand and competitive advantage and all these jargon words have created these massive CAFOs that are essentially some of the largest polluting entities in the world where we are spewing methane and nitrous oxide and CO2 at unprecedented rates. If you imagine 50,000 cows, that's the same weight in one dairy. That's the same amount of weight that you have in almost 500,000 humans. So imagine a 500,000 person city with no sewage regulations, with everything going into an empty pit that's anaerobic, spewing methane and nitrous oxide into the air. That's what we've done with nitrogen and methane in CAFOs. And all because of cheap fossil fuels. We can get away with we it, We can right? get away the with Haber -Bosch it. The Haber-Bosch process itself takes a lot of fossil fuels. It's a ton of energy to create that. The over-application of fertilizers on farmland then results in all these pest and disease issues because too much nitrogen, it makes the plant tissue soft. So now all our farms are spraying even more, um, you know, in, you know, more insects and more diseases are coming on. So it, it 
then now we need these chemicals on the farms to overcompensate for the fertilizer, never mind all the runoff. So it's just one cascading problem after another. Exactly. And you touched on so many of them so eloquently there. I wonder, you know, every time we take a step away and, and kind of have this sin of hubris that we're just, we know what we're doing and we can conquer nature, it seems like there's all these side effects that we don't think of. So the more we can mimic nature, the, the better off we are in the long run. And especially because all of those costs, nobody pays for them. They're all unaccounted for. Exactly. So I, I think this is all so central to organic farming. And we've just really reduced it once again to allowed inputs. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, you've said that in a proper farming system, the carbon stays there. Maybe it's even better to say the carbon cycles there. But to me, when you said this, it's the essence of why hydroponic farming can never be organic because there's no nutrient cycling. There's no soil to put the carbon in. Um, talk a little bit about hydroponics and whether or not to you that's an organic system. So to me, hydroponics is absolutely not part of organic farming. We, hydroponics are nutrients suspended in water. Once nutrients are suspended in water, that's a pollution problem. Where's that water going to go? You can use it over and over again, but ultimately you're going to grow bacteria. And then how do you keep the, the food safe and clean? So clearly there's some loud substances that are going to have to happen that shouldn't be allowed. And then where's the, where's the carbon going? You know, it's making, there might be some in the plant, um, that's going to us, and, but it's not really, there's no soil in the equation. And where's the sunlight? Because as soon as you move away from sunlight, you've lost efficiency in your energy transfer. So if electricity is being used to power, to, uh, power lights to grow these plants, there's the soil-sun equation is out. And put simply, organic farming requires the sun and it requires soil because you're growing organic matter. If you're not growing organic matter, I personally believe one of the key parts of the organic standard should be Every five years, organic farms have to submit organic matter testing in their soils. And that would be a very simple way for people to see if are you organic, you're, are you maintaining or increasing your levels of organic matter. That right there would clear the board of two-thirds of the actors and the rest of us could move forwards as we intended originally. Yeah, it's tricky. I've talked to some really great farmers on that one, you know, soil testing for organic matter content. And I think it would have to be part of, you know, their rotations because they're talking about, you know, I've got a 12-year rotation and sometimes the organic matter dips a little bit on this field during this part of the 12-year rotation. And so Absolutely. it's complicated. It is. I think, I, I think farms I think could get... I think it can get, be done. I agree. I think farms could get waivers. It is about your rotation cycle. So actually on my farm, we would test every seven years per our rotation cycle. We run a seven year rotation. Sometimes that's six years, sometimes it's eight years, now and then it's five, but generally we average a seven year rotation. So my, I would propose that when a rotation is closed, you know, you at, when you get back to the same point you were, you test again. And that would, yeah. that would be the, the cycle with which that we should monitor. How do you think we could account for farms that just import a ton of organic matter and maybe rob organic matter from somewhere else? Is that, I think that looking at the flows of organic matter is important. I do think there is a place for importing organic matter, but only a portion of what you produce. So often you need to bring in some compost to get your, a dead soil back to life. Once it's back to life, it'll photosynthesize better and pump carbon itself. So I feel like, for I'll give you an example. 
we have a farm that buys corn from us to raise chickens and we bring their organic poultry manure back. So there's a, an exchange where we kind of get our nutrient back and, yeah. and it's going back on the fields where that corn is grown. So I feel comfortable with that. Um, but then there are situations where conventional manure is made into compost and then spread onto land, or it's not even made into compost, spread onto land, and that crop ends up being certified organic. And that's basically organic farming depending on synthetic nutrients that were converted into manure out of CAFO. Mm -hmm. So it all gets very, very convoluted very quickly um, as, as the organic standard has become. I mean, I think all yeah. of this, the, as the longer we talk, you can see how easily the organic standard got convoluted and how important it is that um, the work of the Real Organic Project and, and the work of others, too, to educate consumers, to not be consumers, but to be eaters and citizens of a globe who understand the cycles that dictate their very lives. And I think the exciting thing is this: all this does relate to nutrition. So eaters can get really excited about learning about these different farming systems because there really is a difference in, you know, the fat content in milk and meat we know is different. The omega-3s are higher. The conjugated linoleic acids are there. So, you know, talk a little bit about nutrition and farming systems and, and you know, what that means to you. Absolutely. I'm going to use this uh, moment to go back to one thing you said, which is that people say, you know, that would be the, uh, without this watered down organic standard, organic food would be expensive. And I want to point out that the United States spends 20% of its GDP on private health care. We spend 20% of the largest economy in the world on a health care industry. I personally think health care and industry don't link together. Health care to me, but it does in the context of people who eat junk food and, and get unhealthy. If you eat the, the general food, then you get the general medicine and the system makes its profit. But if we're to spend more, if you look at the healthiest countries in the world with lower medical costs, even though everyone talks about how expensive medicine is in Italy or France, it's half what we spend. And these are people who tend to eat better than us, eat more local food. They spend more on their food, but a lot less on their health care. And it all adds up to you save money by eating better. And you end up living a healthier life. So if you eat organic food and you're eating the right types of fat, you're getting the right amino acids and you're truly synthesizing the vitamins and minerals, proteins and fats in your food, then you're healthy. And once you're healthy, a lot of different things can happen. A, you don't spend a ton of money on your health care. B, you might feel good about how you look and feel. And C, your brain's functioning better and you might be able to perform a little better in all aspects of your life. So this is the critical important thing of life. The essence is that what you eat is what you are. And we've completely lost track of that in this country, or we've never even been taught that. And I think that's what the, the nexus of nutrition and what we eat is completely lacking in a context. This is a country where we feed the worst food to our children and our people in hospitals. And that, is the, that says it right there. We don't value nutrition and healthy food, and we have to. We've forgotten that taste of that whole, you know, it's, it's a really complex taste and it's in everything when it's done, when it's farmed real organically, regenerative organically, when it's farmed that way, you really can taste the difference. And I'm embarrassed to say my daughter had a really hard time switching over to the raw organic milk that I can get locally because the flavors were so complex and 
for her taste buds, it was just like, whoa, this isn't the watered down milk that I'm used to drinking, even though we had whole milk. It, the complexity was gone. And there's no doubt that we're, you know, you can taste something that's missing nutritionally in that milk. And the same thing's true of our strawberries. I mean, you can smell the f- flavor that comes off of those strawberries. This, you know, Driscoll's strawberries don't have a smell. So there's so much complexity is just being bred away you know, the homogenization of how it's being farmed, the sterile soils, sandy soils with just organic nutrients going right through them. You know, in a way, those sandy soils are just, it's a hydroponic crop because they're being fed so many organically approved fertilizers. So we've just, we've lost, I think, in my opinion, you know, nobody knows how to eat goat anymore, right? Exactly. (laughs) There's like 200,000 plant species out there and we eat something like 20 or, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty bad. So we've just, we've lost all of that diversity. I think, you know, it completely relates to health. I want to go back a little bit to um, the manure um, pools outside of those CAFOs. And relate it to social justice, because I've seen studies, you know, in order to get rid of those, the water in, in those manure piles, they, they spray it, you know, and then aerial particulates of the E. coli and whatever else, the antibiotics that might be in those pools. You know, if you live within downwind of that or even within a three mile radius of, of any of these CAFOs, and they are everywhere now. Um, your, your health is compromised, you know, how, how does some of what we're talking about relate to social justice? So often CAFOs, CAFOs do one thing. If a CAFO comes to town, the value of your real estate goes down. So CAFOs, if you, if you, if you factor those two costs, a CAFO comes to town and it gets really expensive for everyone but the CAFO. Then it doesn't smell good. You can almost taste the shit in the air. Um, (laughs) Then when this stuff is dispersed, because you have to empty that pond in order to put more in, it, it either volatilizes into the air, and these soils aren't really, often aren't rich in organic matter and often don't have cover crops, usually don't. So many of those nutrients then leach, in, leach into our water. Um, so we lead, pretty much take these valuable nutrients and we, dis, we turn them into pollutants that then disperse into the air and the water. And CAFOs are often placed in poor communities where there can't be organized opposition to them and where people are not in a, where people don't even own the properties nearby and in if you look at where the location of CAFOs they are often they're almost always in poorer communities and they often disproportionately affect native communities native american communities communities of color or illegal immigrant communities especially illegal immigrant communities so here we have a, uh, and I hate to use that word illegal immigrant um, into a country that we, uh, where we stole the land, um, but uh, that's, that's the label these days. So I should say immigrant communities, Native American communities, communities of color, and generally the poor population is exposed to CAFOs at a much larger rate than the rest of us. And they're already not in a position to fight back and already having to fight back against a series of other injustices. So it just sort of adds to a, the uh, toxic stew um, that faces many of these communities already. Yeah, we're we're already, uh, you know, we're going through this growing awareness, I think, culturally right now of all these problems of racism and poverty. And I think that this awareness is a really important part of the organic movement as well. I don't know if you know Anika Abraham, but she came to, um, or she used to be on the board of NOFA New York for some time, but she came to the Dartmouth Symposium, uh, which is what we're replacing, you know, this year's Dartmouth Symposium is now going virtual. But, and she said, you know, I think I'm called upon to point out that there is a lack of diversity in this room. 
And she really challenged us to, you know, not only think about the diversity in, in the soils and the diversity on our farm, but the diversity in our movement. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about this and, and what we might do if you've been really kind of feeling the energy in, in all these movements that are building right now in the last few months across the country. Yeah, I've certainly been feeling the energy and it's something that I, on a personal level, have been dedicated to not just uh, through marriage, really. Uh, my wife is from Haiti. Her parents were farmers in rural Haiti. We started importing coffee that we tried to encourage farmers to plant trees. And um, by paying a high premium for shade-grown coffee from her village in Haiti. Um, we have four kids with a fifth on the way, and they all spend lots of time on the farm. But most importantly, here on the farm, we very intentionally hire from a community of color, and over half our employees are from Jamaica, where they have agriculture experience, um, and we make sure that pay, benefits access has been equal. And this has been my policy from the beginning, starting when 2014. So we, I, when I got here, this was a farm of white men, and I'm very proud to say that between Stonehouse Farm, Hudson Hemp, Old Mud Creek Farm, which is affiliated and rented by Stonehouse, and our carbon project, our crew is almost half women, and half, um, half of our crew is African-American, Jamaican-American as well. Um, and that's been far before this, this movement. I'm impressed by, I think it's very important. I just feel that it, should have never, basically when a lot of our key civil rights leaders were killed in the 60s and early 70s, capitalism quieted this movement and it's finally come back. But I think the mm -hmm. biggest thing that this movement is missing is a link to the fact that 120 years ago, 15% of the land in America was owned by people of color. And today that's down to 1%, not including mm -hmm. Native American reservations. Land is equity. Mm -hmm. Land is our core base of equity. No matter what the money is created at the Federal Reserve and distributed unfairly. It's not linked to land in any way. We took that out of the economic equation with the onset of Austrian economics. We have to see people of color own land and real estate. You have to have your share of this earth um, or there's no equity. And that's yeah. the number one thing that I feel has to be addressed. Our organic movement in the United States is largely white. Um, and there's, that's a function of two things. Um, African-American farmers, there's a concerted effort to force them off their land for 120 years by depriving them of capital, forceful evictions. The Ku Klux Klan was largely came about in response to how much land was given to freed slaves. We now need to address this head on again. And the issue of land is an issue of equity. And due to these experiences, much of our African-American community ended up in cities working at factories, having been chased out of miserable rural areas or having had to leave. And now we're three generations away from having many African-American farmers. So we need land access, farmer training. We also need education amongst children so that children are interested in farming again. And to do that, I think we use cannabis and hemp as our number one way to get interest. You see a lot of interest um, there. And that's, that's our number one way to get young people of color onto the farm is higher through the hemp. Um, and from the, that's, but the next step is how do we get equity in land access and land ownership? And we have to make intentional efforts to make this happen. My own intentional effort is to pass anything I ever end up with my, to my children, but I, I get that most people aren't in that position. Uh, but as a company and as a movement, 
we have to be intentional about this. We also need to make sure that communities of color, that the, one of the best things to do to address social injustice is to eat better and get access to good food. And that'll affect physical health, mental health. With those two things affected, it's a lot easier to build equity and build a life that can move forwards. And that's what I have to say on that topic. I hope it's not too strongly opinion, but I feel very strongly about it. No, it's excellent. I, I, I too believe that it's, it's not enough to just make good personal choices. I think that's a great start, but that we do need to build a movement together to create real change. And I know Nika Abraham has started the Black Farmer Fund uh, to help farmers that she, she teaches in New York. And, um, you know, once farm, you know, the kids learn how to farm, their access to land is just outrageously unaffordable. And so that's uh, part of what the Black Farmer Fund does. So I, I do think it's, it's, important to go beyond our personal choices and just really become part of this larger movement. And I've been so grateful too to the um, the climate strikes by youth because, you know, if we're not going to change the climate, I know there's a connection between the climate health and, and soil health, but I don't think we can have either until we have racial equality and end to poverty. And all of those are political movements that we have to be part of. And so I see the Real Organic Project as very much a part of those movements, raising awareness and very interconnected. And I know Paul Hawken is going to be part of this podcast series, and he wrote the book Blessed Unrest, and he's just talking about how all of these movements are so interrelated. So to me, it's an exciting time. Um, I, I really feel that energy of us coming together, and, and um, I hope it can continue. What um, are your hopes for the future? Do you have any um, thing that you're working on now, any, any projects that are important to you? Yes, yeah, so I, I, managed, I managed three companies that are all cl very closely related. Well, two companies and one nonprofit. We have Stonehouse Farm, we have Hudson Hemp, and we have Hudson Carbon, which researches the health of our soil, documents the carbon dynamic changes related to the practices and soil types, and we're building a model to model how different organic, regenerative organic farming practices affect the carbon cycle. And this all relates back to the de a core belief that I'm trying to link the message, our social messaging, our economic messaging, and our ecological messaging into one core message. And what I'm coming up with is that in order to honor black lives, in order to, in, in order to address poverty, in order to address health and a wide set of ills, I strongly believe that we have to address all life. Life starts with microbes, and if we don't feed those microbes their carbon, and if we don't manage our nutrient cycles life let, properly, there won't even be a world for us to have movements or these problems in within 100 years. So we have to address this core problem of saving all life through better management of our carbon, water, nitrogen, methane cycle, and there are plenty of other cycles, but those are the core four. And we have to engage with underrepresented communities and the economically disadvantaged directly. And we have to do this at the expense of our wealthiest class who need to fund this or we need to take it to make this happen. Do you feel that it's possible to um, have local farmers feed their communities? Is that part of your vision? Absolutely. I think that if we, can be, if we make a concerted effort to grow soils all around the world, we can't just grow food in the best soil in one part of the world. We have to grow food everywhere. And, some, and we need to do, and some food should be moved around. It's more efficient. Most foods we should be growing locally. Um, and it's a mix of ecological restoration, 
social resurrection, and local food. And every community is going to have a different balance of those three things, but all of us need to address it. Yeah, there's a real uh, food access, food apartheid issues. And, you know, it, it, it is hard to find local farms in some areas of the country and, and know your farmer. And sometimes, you know, all you have access to is processed food. Uh, you know, what are some steps that people can take that really can't know their farmer that don't have communities with local farming in it? Well, the first step is to try to buy organic or spray-free flour and make your own bread. Stop eating that sliced bread. The second mm -hmm. step is to buy raw ingredients, buy vegetables, um, try to buy grass-fed meat, buy real butter, and try to get at least something, plant your own garden, at least get something that relates you to your own soil. Even if you just get it once a month, that initial biology is going to help inoculate your body with a whole new set of health. So really I look at raw basic foods, shop the outside of the supermarket, get fruits, get vegetables, get whole raw grains that you cook. People, most importantly, need to cook again using raw ingredients. And where you need it, make sure you do get vitamins in your body and something, something local or something from a garden. Even if you just plant salad greens in a pot in your windowsill and you eat those once a month, it'll make a huge difference for you. Yeah, fresh fiber. Exactly. <laughs> I know you've seen the land transition, you know, from conventional farming into organic. I'm wondering if you could talk about farmers that are hoping to transition to organic, some of the problems they might face in the initial years and maybe what you've observed over time, you know, if, if there's any advice to them to kind of hang in there because there, it takes a while for the soil to recover. Um, and you're in touch with a lot of those farmers that are transitioning. What advice do you have for them? My core piece of advice is to keep it simple. First off, try not to buy anything. And one thing we did is we probably grew too much grain in our transitional years. We, should, we, we put a lot of our land into hay and pasture perennials, but I really advise people, get that land covered with perennials. Then you don't have to spend money on seeding things each year. You can hay that perennial or ideally find someone else to pay you to graze it. And even though it's nominal, just try to cover the cost of leasing your land during that transition and let animals and perennial plants do as much of the work for you as possible. And that gives you time to plan and build a market. So without time to plan and build a market, your chances for success are low. And without time for that soil to get perennial roots and little disturbance and some new biology from animals, it's hard. I've seen the fields where we did that had a much more accelerated transition than those that we kept on farming. Um, Emily Oakley is a farmer, uh, a vegetable farmer. It's, it's tricky for vegetable farmers to not uh, till. Absolutely. And she is a farmer that I am so inspired by. Just two acres, but she rotates, um, and she's in Oklahoma, so she can get away with some pretty, like, unobtainable cover crop sizes. So, you know, but she basically has gotten to the point where there's almost no inputs are coming into her farm. And she's generating all of her fertility with her cover crops and rotating her vegetable farm, which is pretty intensive. You know, two, uh, I think it's one year of cover crop, two acres, and then she'll switch over and, you know, leave fallow for a year. Um, but part of that uh, is mowing the, you know, 24 mm -hmm. feet high cover crop 
uh, with a flail mower and then tilling that under. In, in your opinion, are there, is, is there a little bit of confusion out there about tillage and can it be done well? Absolutely. So I think I grew up on a farm that's two acres of vegetables that my mother farms with horses and she tills each year. The main input to that farm are cover crops and, the horse, and composted horse manure. And then, so therefore the real main input is hay that the horses eat. And her organic matter is now at 8%, up from 3% 30 years ago. And she tills every year. So on a small scale, you, where you can put the personal attention to grow really robust cover crops, like Emily does in Oklahoma, and you can add compost, tillage is absolutely fine and appropriate if you can give it that level of hand care and you can really think out your plots and intentionally use cover crops. There's in fact, no-till means chemicals. If you're fully no-till, it means you're spraying potentially a lot. So mm -hmm. it often means that you're spraying so much that you're getting some carbon gains in the top layer because all the soil life is dead. So the carbon doesn't even get processed. So tillage also is where microbes break down carbon and release CO2. And if you're planting something right when that's happening, the plants will grab that CO2. CO2 is the number one nutrient plants need. So again, it's all about thinking about your timing and your rotation. And there are wonderful ways to grow vegetables intensively and build soil. Can this be done on a larger acreage with uh, grain farms and cover cropping systems? Have you seen it done well? Absolutely. That's what we've done is we've built our uh -huh. organic matter using some perennial, but a lot of annual cover crops. Our seven year rotation includes three years of perennial and four years of annual crops. Um, and those annual crops are either annual or cover crop or some crops like winter wheat will, you know, goes through the winter, acts like a cover crop and then we harvest. But in the spring before harvesting, we spread small grain, small seeds into it, such as clovers or grasses, uh, so that we can okay, seed cool. it back down without tilling. There are absolutely uh -huh. ways to do this with grain. Um, and my, my advice is there's no silver bullet. Everyone in every situation can think through a solution. And whether that's with vegetables, livestock, grains, or perennials, or silvopasture, trees, shade-grown coffee, cacao, sugarcane, there's a way to do all of it. But you really have to think through your local inputs, your local climate, and your carbon cycle in just that spot. And you have to look at it, feel it, and get to know it as a farmer. Yeah, the, to me, this, what you just said describes so well is a good answer to that whole critique of the organic movement as being a Luddite movement. Like we just, we won't adapt to progress. Uh, do you have any comments? And, and basically what you just said, you know, supports not. that. It is so difficult. There's so much knowledge to do this well. The, and how this continuous improvement, we've kind of built on the backs of the people that have come before us and shared knowledge. You know, talk, talk about the, um, what would you say to someone who said organic farmers are just Luddites? They're farming like we did 200 years ago. That's absolutely untrue. Our organic yields today are higher than America's conventional yields were in the 1970s. And we're doing that without poisons and chemicals. My average yields are higher than they were by the mid-80s. Mid um, mm -hmm. And those were good yields that was way too much food for the world already, just not distributed properly. Right. So right. we- And we're doing it without those external costs. We're doing it understanding bio, geo, physical chemistry. We have to look at physics, chemistry, biology, geology, and we have to use technology where appropriate to make a crop. And we are actually, I'd say, the opposite of Luddites. 
we just honor the earth and the very cycles that keep alive, us alive that everyone has forgotten about. Those who usually apply the term Luddite have no idea that my, most likely what they're doing is destroying the earth with the rest of most industries. And yeah. I often look at technology as a tool, but in my more cynical days, I call it technology because the more technology we apply, the less human knowledge and spirit we use. There's also been a criticism that, you know, because there are lower yields, and you've just said that there aren't if you're doing this well, when you're doing this right, um, but because that there are lower yields in organic, this means we have to put more land into farming and we're taking away from forests and we've got more tillage. What are people misunderstanding there? Well, people are misunderstanding that up to 40% of the U.S. corn crop, between 20 and 40%, is used to grow to make ethanol under, with a government subsidy. And that ethanol, the production of it, is a net carbon loss. And it also ruins engines. So here we go growing a huge portion of land in America, 20 to 40 million acres of corn for ethanol. Then we're taking soybeans. We grow far more soybeans than we need. In fact, most of last year's soybean crop is sitting in bins because if you want to speak about viruses, most of China's pigs are dying of a virus, not coronavirus. And they can't even, and be due to the trade war and that fundamental issue, there's no place for the soybeans to go. We have a surplus of these two unhealthy crops, GMO corn, corn and GMO soybeans. And we do not use our land properly. We use tremendous swaths of our south to grow fuel, wood fuel, for, to make wood chips, wood pellets to send to Europe. Hmm. We, grow, we grow cotton where we could be growing hemp and we could be making our fiber much more in a much more um, water-friendly and environmental-friendly way. We, we, don't, we do not need half the land we use to grow the food. And then there's the CAFO issue. The vast majority of our grain is going into CAFOs. If these animals were grass-fed and we were rebuilding our grasslands using the animals that we were eating, we wouldn't need, a, we wouldn't need but a fraction of the grain that we grow today. Well, thank you, Ben, for making all of these uh, natural systems. If we, you know, have us better understand these natural systems, we can try to mimic them in our agricultural systems. I think I'll just uh, maybe ask one last question about what kind of impact. I know we farm like 40% of the land right now. So say, say we were to increase the organic matter by 1% on all that farmland using some of these techniques. And that, you know, that's very doable. 1%, you can do that in five, 10 years with real organic practices. What impact would that have on the climate? So we actually, humans are using between 50 and 60% of our land for grazing and agriculture. And mm -hmm. just let's say half of that land brought in 1% organic matter. 1% of organic matter is um, 22 tons of carbon per acre in the top foot. So if we do the math, I'll just do it on our corn and soybean ground to give you an example. We grow about 200 million acres of corn and soy. So if 100 million of those acres brought in 1% organic matter, that would be 100 million times 22. Uh, that would be 2.2 billion tons of carbon that we could bring into the top foot of our soil on 100 million acres. So we could have a massive impact uh, on our carbon emissions, uh, on, on sequestering our carbon. 
if you and that's just here the whole world emits um, about five more billion tons per year than we're sequestering so if over 10 so that means that over 10 years we'll emit 50 tons of 50 gigatons of excess carbon but just on 100 million acres which is just a fraction of our cropland in this country we could bring in 5% of that if you apply this equation to the whole world we could address we could probably level off our emissions but if we link that to a price of carbon where emitters have to pay for carbon and we reduce emissions there is potential that we could get ourselves to within to close to 350 parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere within the next 50 years if half if half of the world's surface adopted the right practices so it's a long right. shot but it's hopeful um, I'm sorry, it I don't, I don't have at, my uh, math you know, in front of We're at 412 or something now, right? So we got to get back to 315. We're at, we're at there, 412 now. Uh, and Dr. Ratan Lal, who I hold in high esteem, has estimated that we could sequester over 100 ppm of that over the next, by, 20, uh, by 20, 2100. So over the next 80 okay. years. That means that if we want to, so let's take, um, and we want to get to 350. We would, if emissions were dead today, we would have to still sequester 62 parts per million. But he's saying if we could sequester 100, it means that we have a little time where we'll still emit some more before we really re reverse the trend. So the math- we're transitioning. Exactly, the math is showing that if we reinvigorate our ecosystems and farmlands, we could reverse this problem, but it has to be coupled with a drastic reduction in emissions. And the only way I, I see that is to, for a large global scale marketplace, like the one we're, we're setting up a small scale one that we're taking global in a couple of years at Hudson Carbon, where we're working with polluters and individuals to offset their carbon at a two to one rate for a high price, which will discourage further pollution and encourage further sequestration. We can actually apply an economic formula where a high price of carbon would reduce pollution and increase sequestration. So if pollution went like this and sequestration went like this, we could hit a level of carbon that we desire in our atmosphere. And we have to manage this like an economic equation and just like an economy. So our economic system must bring land and its function back into our economic formula, which is now only focused on capital and labor. It must include land and its function once again. Hmm. It's exciting to me that we know how to do this and that there is the potential for so much carbon to be sequestered. It's scary to me that if, you know, just 1% change on half of our farmlands can do that much good, how, like, if, if it continues to go down, you can see how much we've released out of the soils. Exactly. So there is a lot of potential for harm if we continue on the trend that, we, that we're on now. The right. That we're on right now. now, the Amazon is burning so that we can plant mm -hmm. more soybeans. We, right. we are seeing the trend is generally going the wrong way fast. Right. And we need a massive awakening or we're really going to be in trouble. We already are in trouble, big trouble right now. And it's not looking better unless we have a massive reawakening. And unless our political leaders and, and companies realize that they can't even exist without participating in this awakening. Well, thank you, Ben, for being such an important voice in all this. I'll uh, let you get back to the farm. Thank you for the opportunity to speak, Lindley, and I very much support your work and I'm excited for the Real Organic Project. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you'll subscribe, tell your friends, 
and leave us a rating and review. A video version of this interview as well as the full transcript with links related to our conversation is found at realorganicproject.org forward slash episode 41. Please join us next time when our guest is Anne Ross. She'll tell us about her investigations into international grain fraud when she was at the Cornucopia Institute. And she'll talk about the role it plays in the production of industrial organic food. To find a real organic farm near you, visit realorganicproject.org forward slash farms. Mm -hmm.